I, uh, I have no transition here. I have like nothing. So this is an awkward moment for me. Turn with me in your Bible to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, where we will pick up our sermon series today. And as you turn there, let me just start with a true story about a pretty big mistake I made when I was younger. When I was a teenager, our uh, school class trip went to Washington, D.C. Uh, to see all the sights and everything down there in the capital uh, city. And I remember going into the Museum of Natural History where there was a gift shop there, and um, there was a, a lovely uh, stuffed panda bear, and I decided to shoplift the stuffed uh, panda bear. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. Your beloved pastor, the Reverend uh, David Henschel, is a petty thief, or at least I was one. It's true. I stole this panda bear. I wanted to give it to a girl that I had a crush on. Not that that makes it any better, but I'm just trying to explain my stupid thinking as a teenager. And I did not get caught. I did not get caught. But I made the mistake of telling the wrong person who then reported me to the chaperones. They like called this Jedi council of parents somewhere in a hotel in DC somewhere and decided that I should be reprimanded and sent home on a very long train ride from DC back to New Jersey along with my accomplice and missed the rest of the DC trip. Longest train ride of my life, thinking about how to explain that to my parents. Here's the thing that I learned about that. And Andy Stanley says it well. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Choices have consequences. If you make good choices, that can, it's going to lead to good consequences, good opportunities for you. If you make some bad choices, that could lead to some bad consequences, could keep you from your own future dreams and goals. I know you know this, but sometimes you and I have the ability to close our eyes to consequences, don't we? We have the ability to turn the other way and think, hey, it's going to be okay this time, and to pretend it will turn out all right this time. I'm the exception to the rule out there. It's okay for me. Friends, that is a lie. Choices have consequences. I want you to be careful about something called the gap. The gap is the distance of time between choices and consequences. Sometimes the consequence doesn't come right away, does it? And you're thinking, hey, nothing happened. I guess I'm doing all right here, but yet there's a gap. Uh, The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. There's a gap between choices and consequences. Nobody knew this better than King David. That's what our passage is about today. In 2 Samuel 13, we have a transition from David and his generation to the generation that follows David. You'll recall last week, Pastor Bob gave a message about David committing a great sin and having an affair with a woman named Bathsheba going outside the boundaries of marriage, and she ended up pregnant. He first tried to cover up everything and ordered the murder of her husband, and just when he thinks the coast is clear, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him, and David is broken over his sin. God says two things through the prophet Nathan to David. Number one, he says, your sins are forgiven. But number two, he also says there's going to be consequences, and your sin is going to cast a dark shadow over your life. Let me remind you of Nathan's words which are prophetic. Nathan said, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And today's passage really is a fulfillment of all that Nathan's prophecy entailed. That's what we find in our text today. It's a dark, dark story. Most of the sermon today is going to feel really, really dark. 
until the very end where there will be light. I promise you there will be light at the end if you will hang on till the end. But first, we must take a walk through the dark together. The title of my message is The Consequences of Sin, and you'll see three different parts to the message today. You're going to see the assault, the revenge, and the rebellion. As a warning, I am covering like seven chapters today, so this is a long passage. I'm going to have to summarize some of it. You can pick up the details on your own uh, later on. First, we're going to go through the story, and then we're going to draw out what I believe are the timeless points of application here that stretch and travel across 3,000 years of history to us today, which are just as amazingly relevant for us as they were back then. So that's the plan, and let's pray before we dive into the Word. Would you pray with me? God, for a moment, we just pause asking you to quiet our hearts, tenderize our ears to your voice today. And what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For the glory of your beautiful name, amen. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins uh, in a disturbing way. Let me warn you, this first story is one of the most outrageous stories in the whole Bible. So brace yourselves, it is deeply disturbing. Verse 1 says this, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So the first thing we uh, find here is that we're meeting some new characters. The first one's Amnon. Uh, evidently, he's consumed with his desire for his half-sister Tamar, which seems a little weird to our ears, but that's the story. And notice the word love in the passage there. It's important for us as uh, Christians to distinguish between true love and its counterfeits. And so I want you to watch for that today. And let me just say this, ladies, a man can be strongly attracted to you and speak very kindly to you, and it can have nothing to do with love. So as we go through this first story, just ask yourself, is this love or is this a sin-cursed infatuation? Take a look with me at verse 3. It says, now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So this guy Jonadab says, what's wrong? You're the king's son, like you live in a privileged position. What could possibly be bothering you? And it would have been really nice to have Amnon encounter a true friend here, one who would challenge him and walk with him towards integrity. But unfortunately, that's not the kind of friend that he finds. Instead, he gets Jonadab, who's a scoundrel. And so at this point, let me just remind you of David's family tree. You'll take a look on the screen here. This isn't comprehensive, but it gives you a little bit of background and helps you understand who exactly we're talking about in our passage. The ones in yellow are the characters in our story today. You'll see Amnon as the oldest son, and he was in line to be the next king. And Absalom and Tamar, you'll see, are full siblings. You'll notice that. So keep that in your mind as we continue because it's important. Drop down with me to verse 5. It says, go to bed and pretend to be ill. Next slide, please. Jonadab said, when your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let, me, let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. The plan is all set. Here we have another story of sexual sin, like father, like son. Amnon actually asks his father to send her to him, and verse 7 tells us that that's exactly what happened. David sent word to Tamar. You'll recall Pastor Bob did an excellent job last week drawing out the word observation with the word sent 
in this particular passage. It's called a lead word in a Hebrew narrative. David sends for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah. And then he sends Uriah into the front lines of battle, right? Sent, sent, sent. David is using his authority and power in an inappropriate way and sending people into harm's way. This time, it's his own daughter. He sends Tamar into a very dangerous situation But what I want you to notice here is that throughout these chapters, we are seeing echoes of the words that were used with David's sin repeating itself. Drop down with me to verse 11. It says, but when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. But he refused to listen to her. I'm not even going to put the rest of the story up on the screen at this point because it's just too disturbing. Suffice it to say, the text is clear. He has relations with her, but it is not consensual. It is done by force. And then verse 15 contains this heartbreaking statement. It says, Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred, In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. So what happened? Did the so-called love that he had for her just disappear? No. He was not focused on her. He was focused on himself. He was self-centered. He did not care about Tamar at all. He shows utter disregard for her integrity and her dignity. Amnon is consumed not by what he could do for her, but what he desperately wanted to do to her. This is not love. If you love someone, you protect them, you earn trust with them, you're patient with them, you're kind with them. Amnon loved himself. In fact, it says he hates her, and he wants to send her away. Verse 16 picks up the story with her words. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. I can't really quite describe to you in English the harshness of his words here in the original text. Actually, the word woman is not present in the Hebrew. It's a better translation would be, get this thing out of my presence. He has completely dehumanized her. He has completely objectified her. To him, she's worthless. Verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. The terror only takes a moment. In 10 minutes, Tamar's whole world, her whole life is in tatters. Now she's filled with shame, compounded by the disgust of this assault and incest. Tamar has been oppressed. She's been hurt. She's been defiled by a lustful and an evil man. So let's just acknowledge that this is a really, really upsetting account But the reason why abuse is recorded in the Bible is because we need to know a couple of things about it. First of all, we need to know that the scripture tells us that God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. Friends, if you've ever been through something horrific like this, I want you to know that the Bible declares that God sees and God knows. Secondly, we also need to know where to go with this kind of shame from abuse. Remember Tamar's question, where can I get rid of my disgrace? Where could I carry my shame? Remember that question? The Bible tells us where we are to go with that kind of shame and disgrace. In fact, 
That's what the cross is all about. This is why people who reject the cross don't really understand the significance of the cross. Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, says the biblical message of the cross is that the outrage is first, at, first of all in the heart of our God. The Bible tells us where to go with our shame from abuse. Psalm 119 verse 114 says, you are my hiding place and my shield, O Lord. I hope in your word. We carry our disgrace and our shame to our God of perfect justice. God sees and God knows. Now, there should also be legal and earthly consequences for this kind of evil. But what makes matters worse in this story is that David, who's the king, who's supposed to bring about justice as the king, doesn't do anything. It says that he's angry, but there is no action. He does not demand Amnon repent. There is no punishment given here for Amnon. I mean, after all, who is David to tell anyone how to live their lives in a moral fashion? There's also no record of David coming to Tamar with any words of comfort or honor or respect. So the lesson here in this first account is clear. Passivity in the face of evil only produces more evil. This is the problem with the silence culture around this topic. Some of us just don't like to talk about this, and it's uncomfortable. But when we refuse to talk about these things, when we squirm about it and say, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to look at it, this is kind of gross, that's the culture that keeps this from being addressed. And it makes it worse, because passivity in the face of evil only brings more evil. Meanwhile, David's other son, Absalom, Tamar's full brother, is incensed about this. He is furious with his half-brother, Amnon, and he's also furious with his father, David, which leads us to movement two, the revenge. There's a leadership vacuum here, and Absalom decides he's going to be the one to step into that vacuum. Now, before we get into this, aren't you at least a little bit glad for Absalom's anger? I am. I mean, finally, somebody's mad about this. Righteous anger, church, is absolutely a noble thing. Even our God is angry at times. So on the one hand, Absalom is right. This thing should not have done. He displays the anger that was lacking in his dad. But, but, but his anger, unfortunately, is an immature anger. Because the sin was not properly handled appropriately and firmly in the beginning, it's going to lead to greater problems. Absalom should have went to his half-brother, to call him to repentance, and if he did not, he should have brought the matter to the elders of Israel to get justice, not to take matters into his own hands as he does here. So on the one hand, Absalom's instinct for justice is good and correct. On the other hand, his method is going to be ruthless and excessive as he starts to play God. So Absalom waits for about two years. About two years go by, and we pick up the story with verse 28 as the plan starts to unfold. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. So what happens is Absalom throws this big feast, asks David to send Amnon to the feast. He gets everybody good and drunk, and then he sends his men into the dining hall, and he orders them to kill Amnon right in front of all the other brothers. Again, notice the parallels here. 
David sent his servants to bring about the murder of Uriah. Here now, David's son Absalom is sending his servants to strike down David's oldest son, Amnon. And David himself is sending Amnon into harm's way. Notice also Absalom's words, be strong and brave. If that language looks familiar to you, it's because it is. We've seen similar language given by God in Joshua chapter 1, as he is told to be strong and to be brave. And Absalom, playing the role of God, is using words that are tantamount to blasphemy here. He's using God's covenant language to bring about a first-degree murder. The story goes on to say this in verse 29. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. It's over. Amnon is dead. When David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by his favorite son, Absalom, David begins to weep and mourn. But once again, that weeping and mourning is not accompanied by actions of justice. Verse 27 describes the scene. It says, Absalom fled, but King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled, he stayed there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. So Absalom spends three years in exile, and apparently that delay cooled David's enthusiasm for justice and prudence. Verse 39 says he was consoled, or he was comforted. Somehow he was able to come to terms with Amnon's death. But this indicates to us that David is not taking seriously enough the evil that was committed by Absalom. David does not have zeal for God's law. Just think of that. David is the one who wrote Psalm 19, who said, The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. But when it comes to his own son, he can't see it. He's totally lost himself here. David is way off of who he really is because it's his own kids. One of David's worst failures was his failure as a dad, his failure to discipline his sons, and his failure to care for his daughter. Even his agreement to Amnon's original request to send Tamar and then his agreement to send Amnon to that banquet just tells us that David is a little bit out to lunch with his family responsibilities. David is fully engaged as the king, fully engaged at work. His career's going fine, but he's disengaged from his family, and as a result, they're a mess. And so David's story is a common story, right? Lots of public achievements accompanied by lots of private failures. It's not that uncommon. This is why the Bible says that leadership spiritually in the church should always start in the home. 1 Timothy chapter 3 has the standards for an elder and says an elder must be able to manage his household well for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the church of God? Because godly leadership starts in the home, but David's home is a mess and it's about to get worse. And so we've seen the assault, we've seen the revenge, and now we're about to see the rebellion. So remember, about three years go by. Absalom's been gone. And I'm not going to read chapter 14 for you. I'm just going to tell you what happens in chapter 14. Joab, David's general, is concerned about the security of the kingdom, having a prince, Absalom, over in exile. So what Joab does is he sends a woman in to manipulate David into talking him into restoring Absalom. And she engages David in a story 
Kind of like the story that we heard in chapter 12. Remember that story Nathan told about the lamb and David was incensed about all that? She tells a very similar story and it worked with Nathan in his parable. So Joab's like, let me try that technique again on David, see if it works with Absalom. Just have David consider reality through the perspective of another person. And sure enough, it it works. And David ends up giving Absalom amnesty. So Absalom is invited to move back into the castle. And he's just kind of residing there as if nothing happened. There's this parenthetical description of Absalom in chapter 14 that says this in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standards. That's like five pounds of hair, by the way. 27, three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was what? He named his daughter Tamar. And she became a beautiful woman. The writer of 2 Samuel wants us to see that Absalom is the new Saul. Everything's focused on his external appearance. But we've already learned this lesson, right? God does not look at the outside. God looks at the heart. And we see him naming his daughter Tamar is telling us he's still nursing this grudge. Absalom is in a state of bitter anger, and he's plotting a conspiracy in the shadows. Now, at this point, though he's invited back to the castle, David is keeping his distance. David won't talk to him and David won't see him and David's ignoring him. And Absalom is furious about that. So Absalom is trying to get David's attention. And what he does is he tries to get Joab to get a meeting together with him and David. And Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom either. And Absalom actually lights Joab's farm on fire and sets field to this gigantic barley field that Joab has. And Joab's like, what in the world are you doing? Absalom presents himself as a demanding, petulant, self-absorbed, willful child. He commits arson. Joab's like, why are you burning up my field, man? Absalom's like, now that I have your attention, I've been telling you I want to talk to David. Can you listen now? So Joab's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. And he sets up a meeting between father and son, and they get together, and it looks like on the one hand there's some degree of uh, uh, restoration. David lays his hands on him as a gesture of forgiveness, but it's a false reconciliation Because a true reconciliation would require the essential ingredients of repentance and justice. None of them are here. Instead, David subjugates God's law to his own feelings of loyalty for his son. And he's wrong. Friends, we cannot subjugate the demands of justice to the demands of love. Even when God forgives It is never at the expense of his justice. One of my pet peeves is to hear Bible teachers say, hey, be glad that God was not just with you. Be glad that he was loving toward you. Do you have any idea what you're saying? You're saying God's love is unjust. God's love is not unjust. God poured out his justice and his perfect wrath on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, until it was satisfied and his justice and his wrath were propitiated there. God's love is always, always, always just. And we, as made in the image of God, must never love at the expense of justice either, even if it means for our own children. 
Now, if you read the story of Absalom, as a dad, I'm reading this story, and this is like the kind of child every parent dreads. Like, this is the kind of child where when your kids are little, you're like, I wonder if they're going to grow up to be one of those kind of kids, right? Will my children be like one of these people? Absalom is a self-centered, rebellious, sinful young man, seemingly without a conscience. Some people say he even shows the marks of, of narcissism. He's got grandiosity. He's got a sense of entitlement. He's manipulative. He's impulsive. He, he, he has a reckless and consistent, irresponsible behavior, and he lacks total remorse. He never repents for anything right up until the end. Now, I don't have time to go into all that, but I would encourage you, if you're in a small group, explore that, because that might be what's going on here. But for those of us who have kids, can we ask ourselves, have we ever felt like David here with our adult children? You know, there's an old expression, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. There are some allegiance, there are some allegiances as parents that we must sadly let go. One of the most difficult are the bonds between parents and unrepentant, wayward children. That does not mean we don't love them. That does not mean we don't pursue them in a relationship anymore. But what I'm saying is the time comes sometimes when practical support And parental approval is no longer helpful for that child. David won't learn that lesson. David allows Absalom back to the palace. David allows him to be in a position where now he can do maximum damage to the family. And surprise, surprise, guess what happens? Absalom decides his dad is unfit to be the king, and he wants to overthrow the kingdom And he sets up a conspiracy to drive his father away from Jerusalem. That brings us to chapter 15. It says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Why? He wants the appearance of power. This is where the king would sit and do justice. He's proving himself here to be a master of projection on the outside, Absalom is. But on the inside, we know he's still an unprincipled scoundrel. The text goes on to say this. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in this land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that they receive justice. So he would greet people as they come who are looking for justice and he would hear them, but he would also disappoint them and say, oh, you have a wonderful case. Here's the problem. Nobody's going to hear your case here. You can't get justice here in the palace. Nobody's going to give you justice. If I were the king, though, I would be different. I would bring about justice. Can you believe the nerve of this guy saying he's the one that can promise justice? The text goes on to say, verse 5, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom is a loyalty thief. He's riding his dad's coattails, but he's not like his dad. He's not a faithful man. He's a faithless man who wants his father's throne. He wants to sit on this chair back here for himself. He wants his father's glory 
all for himself. Absalom wants to sit right here. So he's out on the city gate, but it's all a ruse. It's all a conspiracy. None of it is really true. He's manipulative. He's two-faced. All of this is going on for four years. Where's David? What's David thinking? We don't know. Maybe like some of us parents, we want to think the best of our kids. We, we hope to think that our kids are not doing what we fear they might be. We don't really know what David is thinking. But what we do know is right in front of his face, Absalom is stealing the loyalty of David's people and taking his conspiracy to the next level. So the next stage in taking his father's position is he's got to build an insurgency that will ultimately lead to civil war. And this is his moment. And so verse 7 tells us, at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I'll worship the Lord in Hebron. So the king said, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Do you remember where David was first crowned as king? Hebron. Verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And the people are rejoicing. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. And David abandons the throne. Once again, David is a fugitive But this time, he's not 22 years old anymore, running away from Saul. Now he's 60, running away from his own son. I'm sure he didn't think this is the way I was going to spend the golden years of my life. But now David is a weakened man, and he decides to leave Jerusalem and make plans to escape across the Kidron Valley and takes the path of humiliation. It's such a devastating scene. Just look at one verse, verse 30. It says this, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. This has got to be one of the most sad scenes in the whole Bible. Isn't this the strong King David, the the giant slayer, the king of Israel? What happened? It's horrible. It's horrible, this scene. Horrible. And listen, get the full importance of this. In order for him to take this throne, the king must die. What a thing to consider. In fact, David knows this. Look at what he says in chapter 16, verse 11. He says, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. And if David dies, with him probably dies 10-year-old Solomon... And with him, what happens to the kingdom? What happens to the covenant? What happens to the promise that God made? And so David is weeping. And the reason why this is such a sad scene is this is one of the clearest accounts in the Bible of the consequences of sin. Nathan predicted that this evil would rise up out of David's own house. And David knows this is all a direct result of my behavior. So he's not just mourning over his son, he's mourning over his own sin, the consequences of his sin. And for us, as we read it today, this is a warning. For me, this is a war, I need this warning right here. 
Because I can so minimize the consequences of sin. How about you? Can I ask you a question? Can we ask ourselves this question? Where are you right now minimizing the consequences of sin? Where are you right now planting seeds in your life that you don't want to harvest? Friends, we live before the face of a holy God, before the face of a great king, the God of the universe, and we cannot just do whatever we want. There are spiritual laws in place. What we sow, we reap. The problem sometimes is we really don't believe that. We are so capable of minimizing sin. Husbands, you think you can not be faithful to your spouse and it won't damage your marriage. It will. Parents, you think you can neglect or mistreat or just passively not care for your children and discipline them and that won't affect them and everything will be fine. It won't. My friend, you think you can love material pleasures to the neglect of God's call to help those who are in need. You can't. Sin has consequences, probably much worse than you think. It has huger and wider consequences than you could have ever imagined. Somebody once said, sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is not your friend. Sin is your mortal enemy. Think about this. If someone would have told David on that night with Bathsheba that this was going to be the result of his behavior, that all of this stuff would happen as a result of his choices, do you think he would have thought twice? We don't know. What we do know is we have the story from our perspective, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we think twice before indulging in sin? God takes sin seriously, and I I pray in the spirit of grace that we would also take sin seriously because sin is not good for you. So back to our story. So David left. Absalom shows up in Jerusalem. He takes the city. David's not there. So he seizes the palace. He sleeps with all of David's concubines. And in walks another character named Ahithophel, who's there to trade sides from being being David's advisor to being Absalom's advisor. He's a traitor. He's a Benedict Arnold. And the reason is because this guy, Ahithophel, is Bathsheba's grandfather. And for years, he's been nursing a grudge about what David did to his granddaughter. And finally, he's got his chance to get David back. And you better believe he's taken advantage of it. And he's a great military strategist. So Ahithophel tells him exactly how to finish David off. He says, don't rest here, Absalom. Go get your men. Go pursue your dad immediately. Don't let them get organized. If you go now, you can get them. You can catch them. Number one, go with overwhelming force. Number two, use the element of surprise. Number three, use a surgical strike and kill your dad. Then you'll be king. Meanwhile, David's out in the wilderness fleeing from his son Absalom He knows Ahithophel has become a traitor. He knows what a great military strategist he is. And David begins to pray the words of Psalm 3. I don't have time to read that right now, but this is where Psalm 3 happens. How many are my foes? How many are they who rise up against me? That that song, go read that this afternoon in your time. And David gets an idea to send back to Jerusalem another counselor, Hushai, like a spy, to go back and pretend also to be a traitor and find a way to give Absalom different advice, frustrating advice that won't be the same as Ahithophel. So Hushai goes back, greets Absalom, and he says, long live the king. But he's very vague about which king he's talking about. 
Hoshai really actually has his allegiance to David the king. He just leaves that word out. Long live the king. And then in chapter 17, verse 7, here's what we read. It says, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they're fighters. And as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. In other words, this guy says, there's no rush. You can personally go lead this campaign and overthrow your father. Ahithophel knows that's terrible advice. Ahithophel goes home and he actually hangs himself. Meanwhile, David is in, in flight at this city called Mahanaim, where he gets all kinds of help from loyal friends. All kinds of supp- supplies are there, including a guy from Lodabar. Remember Lodabar? They remember David's kindness that he displayed in Lodabar, and they come to David's aid, and he's, he's now got uh, men around him that are forming an army, and he knows he needs to defend himself against his son. And so what David does is he divides his army up into thirds, and David's willing to go into the fight too. He's like, I'm in this. I'm at the front. Let's go. Let's, let's fight. And his men say, no, 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 David, you're not coming with us. You're worth more than 10,000 of us. You stay behind. We will fight this battle for you. David says, okay, I have one request, though. I want you to take Absalom alive. Here's what it says in verse 8. The king commanded Joab, his general, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king. David wants them to spare his son's life. That's the order. Now, this battle does not take place in an open field or an open plain. It takes place in a forest. And because of that, numbers were not as important. Rather, what's important here is experience and wisdom, and that's what prevails. So here's what happens in verse 6. Are you guys with me? Say amen. I feel like I'm giving you so much information, but it's a great story. We've got to tell the whole story. Okay, so here we go. Six. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Verse 9. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, which was the vehicle for the king, And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair, remember the hair? Got caught in a tree. You can laugh. It's supposed to be funny. It's okay. This is funny. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. There goes the throne with the mule. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Job, I I just, I just, the the, the thing, the the guy, the, the hair, I just saw Absalom. Hanging up there. (laughs) Need a little comic relief, right? This is like a really serious story. It's a really dark story. This is funny. Here's this mighty Absalom hanging there, helpless from a tree. Remember, his hair was his glory and crown. This glory leads to his downfall. Just stop here for a second and drop anchor. An hour earlier... Absalom has thousands and thousands of soldiers that are willing to listen to every word that he says. He's got a throne set before him, and he's ready to sit on that throne as the king. He's about to be the most powerful man in all of the land, and here he is, hanging from a tree on the precipice of the judgment of God that's going to be delivered through David's mighty men, and he has nothing to comfort him but an evil conscience. As the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
Let's continue the story as we're told what happens next. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? But the man replied, I, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. Joab's had enough of this mess. You know, I'm not going to wait for this like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. So Joab, the mighty general, finishes him off with his own hands with three spears thrust into Absalom, and there he is like a giant pincushion. Here lies Absalom, a sad and tragic life. No signs of repentance, right up until the end, even when he's dangling on from a tree. Then it says this, and 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up large piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Again, same words are used here in this text that were used to describe the death of Uriah. The Hebrew terms struck down and killed him are there on purpose. The manner of Uriah's death is being replayed again and again and again, now this time on David's own son. Sometimes the most painful discipline is when the Lord allows the children to begin to repeat the sins of the parents. So Absalom is dead. News comes to David about all of this, and David starts to shake violently. It says the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the text goes on like that. David in tears for the second time in our passage with this complex set of emotions. Just imagine you were David. On the one hand, there's relief that he's no longer in danger. On the other hand, there's deep grief. He's finally safe, but yet the worst fear of his life has just been realized. His son is dead, so he's mourning, he's grieving. He's so upset, his men don't even want to celebrate. It's, for David, this is personal. He's crying tears of loss. He's crying tears of regret. He's crying tears of longing for his son. And as David is weeping here, the same term is used for weeping and crying out that was used earlier to describe how Tamar was weeping and crying out. And perhaps finally here, David knows the pain that he's inflicted on the lives of others, the pain of Tamar, the pain of Uriah, the pain that his actions have caused on others. Sometimes the Lord allows consequences in our lives so that we might be able to better understand the pain that we've inflicted on others through our own sin and ignorance. There's this one scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a book called The Horse and His Boy. And Aslan the lion is in that scene and he takes his sharp claws and he just gently claws the back of one of the characters. And one of the characters is like, why why did you do that? And Aslan the lion, the Christ figure says, I did that so that you might know the kind of pain you have inflicted on someone else. Friends, sometimes God has to not just tell us but to show us the consequences of our sin. Which brings me back to my story about shoplifting. 
It really wasn't until years later, when I myself was robbed, when someone smashed in the window of my car and ripped out my stereo that I loved, only then did I fully realize what I had done by stealing, by taking for myself what was the property of others. It was wrong. It was sinful. You see, even when we receive the consequences of our sin as followers of God, even that is an experience of God's love for us. Because we, his children, are so able to see sin as not dangerous. And so God allows us to taste the bitter harvest of the consequences of our sin. And that's not because he hates us. That's because he loves us. Author Paul Tripp, biblical counselor, says it this way. If that means limping for the rest of your life, but with a heart that loves Jesus, then that limp is worth it. Can you be grateful today that our Heavenly Father loves us enough and disciplines us when we deserve it, when we need it? And if you're here today and if you've made mistakes, I'm not here to bring judgment and condemnation. You need to know that there's grace for you too. And aren't you grateful today that though you might have missed it a little bit in your life or maybe with your kids or maybe as a parent, you need to know that God's grace and God's kindness extends to you today too, brother and sister. Our God offers us forgiveness and second chances and third chances and our God is a God of redemption. And aren't you glad that God can also say with those consequences, and Dave, I still love you so much. So here's David weeping, and his, his weeping his weeping is like too much for Joab. So Joab's like, bro, get it together. Like you crying, you're communicating something to your men. You're communicating to them that you'd rather have them dead than your son dead. This is not good. It's like you love people who hate you, and you hate people who love you. This is not a good message as a leadership principle here. Joab says, David, you've you got to pull your act together and come together for the, for the nation of Israel. This is a hard truth about Absalom, but this is justice, my friend David. And David pulls himself together. And then we read this glorious verse in chapter 19, where it says this in verse 15, then the king returned. And he's greeted as he comes back from the forest at the Jordan River, First by his own tribe of Judah. Everybody's there. Like Mephibosheth is there. Remember that guy? All people are there to greet David and to welcome him back to the city gate. And he even extends mercy towards everybody who turned against him in that rebellion. And he forgives them. And David then sits back down on the throne. And we, the readers, like breathe a big old sigh of relief. Because David's dynasty survives and God has not forsaken his people. Why? Because of David? No, because of the covenant promise of God. Why? Because David was faithful to God? No, because God was faithful to David. Friends, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. All of God's promises are yes and amen. So yes, there are consequences of sin but yes, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And God's king remains on the throne. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do, let me make one more observation. My observation 
is that the writers of the Bible do not paint the heroes of the Bible with a brush that would cover their flaws. And that's a really good thing. Because if there's hope for David, then there's hope for me. There's really only one hero in the Bible. And he comes from the line of David. There was another king who also went weeping as he crossed the Kidron Valley and went up the Mount of Olives. But this time he was not weeping over the consequences of his own sin. This time this king was weeping because he would bear the sins of the whole world. This true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not just our king. He was also our savior and our merciful God. And the only reason why we don't have to pay the full penalty, the full consequences for our sin, the only reason why we don't have to fully absorb God's consequences is because he absorbed that wrath on our behalf. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, he was like Absalom. This son of David would hang cursed on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth to take on the full penalty of our sin. And in so doing, he made for us a new covenant in his blood. And though the old covenant says, I will remember your sins to the third and the fourth generation, in the new covenant, he has told us that he will be merciful to our sins and he will remember our unrighteousness no more. And now he will be faithful to not just the third generation, not just the fourth generation, but to a thousand generations of those who will place their faith in him. My friends, run to this great king for his blessing. Can we pray? God, we're so aware. I'm so aware of my own shortcomings. I'm so aware of what should have been in store for me. And I'm also so aware that you did not give me what my sins deserved. But instead, you gave me your mercy and your grace. And there is love in your eyes for each man and woman in this room today. And so, God, we come to you today looking for your mercy and looking for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.